The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today we radiate dying well with Kristen Van Uden, the spokesperson, the U.S. spokesperson for Sophia Press, and uh, the spokesperson for the author who died, what, in the 1600s? That's right. He died in 1621. So today we'll be discussing the title by Doctor of the Church, St. Robert Bellarmine, The Art of Dying Well. He was a very prolific theologian and wrote works of very high-minded theology, but this work was written for the everyday audience, um, just under 130 pages, so very accessible. He had a way with words um, for everyone from every level of education during his time period that is shockingly still really relevant today. It is really relevant. Just looking through the table of contents, just these are all of the things we would want to do in order to die well. Now, this saint, uh, Bellamy, was he actually a priest at the time? You said he was a doctor, uh, or Bellarmine. Um, was he a doctor? He was a doctor, but he was also, yeah, what was his background? So he was a priest. He was a Jesuit, part of the Jesuit order. And by doctor, Jesuit. yep, <laughs> we know them. Uh, he was a doctor of the church. So that he wasn't a doctor in the sense that we think of today, but uh, the church has, I believe at this point, 36 saints that they have declared to be doctors of the church. That is, their contributions to the church were so great and so varied uh, that they have something very important and unique to say that has either solidified uh, Catholic theology or brought many faithful to the church so they have been given that title. So he is one that's well known for his theological writings. He dealt with um, basically a lot of controversies during his life, including the Galileo controversy, the divine right of kings, the power of the Pope, and kind of the limits of the Pope's power. And uh, lots of lots of change was occurring, you know, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century 
And he was a great defender of the church during that time with the many heresies that were floating around as well. So we see a lot of diversity in the types of doctors of the church. We have someone like him who is a very intellectual man, and then also someone like St. Therese of Lisieux, who has pioneered what's known as the little way of just uh, devoting every small action of your life to God, including something as simple as doing dishes. So we see for anyone in whatever your state of life, there's basically somebody who has been declared a doctor of the church who shared that state of life and can provide an inspiration for you. Yeah, so the the Jesuits, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jesuits. They're very intellect, yeah. very intellectual order. I mean, it's all about teaching yeah. and knowing and understanding and learning and writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Especially back then, the Jesuit order was founded with a very missionary charism as well. So they're the ones that you see going out to North America to evangelize the Native Americans and to the the martyrs of Japan, for example, if you've heard of um, of that saga for, for centuries. The Japanese were under persecution, the, the Catholics there. So the Jesuits would come and often would be killed themselves. Um, there's a movie about this called Silence, actually. It just came out a couple of years ago, which is fascinating. But yes, they're they're known for their, their intellectualism and also just their complete devotion to the point of martyrdom often. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... And we know Jesuits mostly from Jesuit universities. That's right. Yep. Especially here in the U.S., quite a few still prominent ones still going. Yeah. Yeah, very prominent ones. Okay, so the art of dying well. Why did St. Bellarmine feel this was necessary? So St. Bellarmine knew that the end of life, not only temporarily, but also when you think about it, teleologically, what is the purpose of life is a good death. So basically the life will end. This life on earth will end. And since we are a fallen species, uh, we lost the gift of immortality and the garden of Eden and our Lord through the person of Jesus Christ you know, this was the purpose of the crucifixion, the passion, death, and resurrection was to reopen the gates of heaven to the human race and to allow us to have eternal life by living through the church the way he has prescribed. So when we think of our death, as Catholics, we actually think of it as a rebirth. So this is why saints are celebrated on their feast days, which is actually the day that they die. So rather than celebrate a birthday, we celebrate sort of their heavenly birthday, right? This is the day that they were reborn into God's kingdom and united with God in the beatific vision face to face. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is also the language that you'll see baptism um, couched in is language of death to sin. So at the moment of a baptism, you literally become a new person. You die to sin and are reborn into the life of the church through the life-giving waters of the sacrament. And so death is omnipresent really in, um, in everyone's life, but also the life of the Catholic and life and death are really two sides of the same coin, because when we die to the world, die to our own sinful desires, die to the day to day of time and space, we are reborn into our true spiritual destiny as children of God. And so really the only moment that matters in your life, the moment that is the most important is the moment of your death where you pass on from this life to the next. And so St. Robert understood that that moment is something that requires preparation, not just 
the week before, you know, not just in the moment, but throughout an entire lifetime, because I guess not to be grim, but the moment you are born, you start dying. <laughs> you start Honestly. moving towards your death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, people always ask, well, I'm going to die of this. Well, you're going to die. Definitely. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe this, maybe not. But, um, you know, this death and taxes is what we usually <laughs> say. Those are the two things that you can't avoid. Right. So, um, so there are so many different things that go into this. Just uh, looking at the table of contents alone, learn to die to the world. Wow. Strive to live well, persevere in faith, ever ready to meet Christ. Now, personally, Kristen, I should let you know, I am not a Christian and I'm not a Catholic, right? I'm a big fan of Jesus, though, huge fan. But, um, you know, some of these, some of these um, terms, I feel that they're not terms that I use, but I understand. Right. So I'll mm -hmm. probably ask sure. some really dumb questions. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> So, but all of these things that he talks about, what goes into dying well, they make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So what is, what did he mean, do you think, by learn to die to the world? So his first point is that in order to die well, one must have lived well. So this is a pattern in your life, basically, that if you are living, he has a quote, actually, he says, it is certain that all who live well to the end die well, nor can he die ill who has never lived ill. So it's the culmination of how you've behaved and acted and been present in the world for your whole life. The moment of death is an encapsulation of, of who you are as a person and, and the way that your life has been lived. And with that in mind, what he means by dying to the world is essentially kind of what we discussed with regards to baptism, that uh, Catholics, as Catholics, we understand that we are building up our treasures in heaven. And this is what he's talking about here is that the, the goods of this world will all pass away. So no matter how rich you become here, how accomplished, successful, uh, happy, even, even those emotions are only temporary and they are, you can't take it with you as they say, <laughs> um, there's, there's literally nothing that you, you come into this world alone and you will die alone. And that is a moment between you and God. So regardless of what you have in this life, be it good or bad, if you're not storing up those, uh, those goods for heaven, then he, he believes that this will lead to a bad death. So dying to the world sounds very counterintuitive, right? Because the world is objectively good in many ways, but also sin has been introduced. So humans sin, they behave badly. They start wars, they um, cheat each other in business. You know, we've seen the fruits of sin on the earth. Like this is what literature is born from, right? <laughs> is the problems of humanity. And uh, oftentimes tragedy is, is the most interesting thing for us as humans. We have this sort of death wish, wish that Nietzsche, you know, talks about. Right. So uh, we, in order to really uh, pursue our divine inheritance, we have to turn away from sin. Sin has corrupted the world. And through our Lord's sacrifice, we have the avenue by which to do that. So he gives some practical uh, tips for turning away from the world, dying to the world. And uh, fasting is actually the first one of them. So, right. um, 
the Catholic Church right now, we are entering the season of Lent, or we are midway through actually the season of Lent, which places a great emphasis on fasting. And fasting is a way to really reorient your focus to spiritual things rather than the physical, because in the just most obvious way, you are sort of cutting out that um, pipeline, just a, a pleasure of eating and focusing on being more intentional with what you are consuming. Um, the points of fasting, just um, as sort of a primer, there we have basically preparation and reparation. So we can actually make reparation for sins through fasting and through any sort of other efficacious suffering. So you'll hear Catholics say often, offer it up, offer it up. So it seems, uh, you know, after you hear that a while, you're like, okay, yes, I know I'm suffering, but that uh, is what, what we, uh, what the church teaches is that your suffering, no matter how small it is and no matter how big it is, can actually have a benefit for the next life for yourself, for someone you offer it for, for the souls who are currently in purgatory and so it's actually, you'll see among many of the saints, they embrace suffering. They embrace poverty, for example. Uh, St. Peter Claver, we just issued another book about him. So I've been reading about his life. And he embraced the life of poverty to the extent where he ate maybe one meal a day. He didn't need to eat because he was just sustained by, by the power of God's grace. Um, he had reached that degree of holiness. And also he administered to lepers, which of course we see in the gospels themselves that our Lord himself does, where it's a complete trust in God and an understanding that, you know, you're taking a risk by being around those with this terrible debilitating disease that you could very well catch this, but that your soul and the souls of these people in the next life matter more than the temporal risk of getting sick and having your body deteriorate because being born is a death sentence and you will die. And so, (laughs) um, understanding that, that the end of life does not end with death, but rather that is the passage to your eternal life. And in order to ensure an eternal life with God, turning away from this world to focus on God, 100% of the time throughout this life is the only way to, to defeat death. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And of course I'm an adherent to reincarnation, you know, kind of of the Buddhist and the Hindu tradition that, um, yeah, but it's very, it's very similar. We want to live well in our current life so that we can live well in the next life. That is the same idea. And so St. Bellarmine wrote this in the 1600s, hundreds of years ago. Why bring it up now? Why did the Sophia Press choose to bring this work out at this time? I think now there's a great fear uh, among any, anyone at all walks of life, not only of death, but also just of suffering. And I think especially here in the West, we have this horror of suffering. Of course, nobody likes to suffer. It's, it's not enjoyable. That's the point. Um, sacrifice is very difficult. And we're blessed to live with many gifts that, of course, we, we should be grateful for the comforts of our lives and, and the luxuries that we're given. But also, uh, to read books like this, you really recognize that those comforts can oftentimes become a distraction from living a holy life. And um, sometimes 
to go back to St. Peter Claver, he would even say that the state of being enslaved was easier to get to the things of heaven because you have kind of given up on enjoying this life at that point, right? If you, if you're, you know, in the gulag, for example, then uh, we we have many examples for uh, we have Falter, or excuse me, Father Walter Sizak actually he wrote a book about called With God in Russia, where he he developed in the spiritual life while in a prison in the Soviet Union because mm-hmm. in these very austere times, and we see this in a lot of Holocaust writing as well. You really come face to face with death and you recognize that the pleasures of this earth are fleeting even on this earth. So even if you are living for the pleasures of hedonism, there's no guarantee that they will ever continue. And there's no, uh, once they're taken away, that they will ever come back. So placing your, your faith in things of this world will, even if you achieve them, never satisfy you. This is why we see uh, the seven deadly sins, for example, gluttony, for example, people who suffer from this sin consistently have to eat more and more and more just to hit the same you know, dopamine levels and they, they max out their brain chemistry. And it, it's uh, the, the, the goal that you were seeking was not worth having to begin with. So right. I think Sophia really understood the the plague of this sort of addiction to pleasure in the West and a reorientation towards the memento mori. So remember your death. Um, I think that's been lost today because we're a very consumerist culture. We are very focused on the pleasures of the here and now, uh, especially with social media and with constant reinforcement loops. Oftentimes you don't have to think outside the box. You don't have to look at unpleasant things. You can insulate yourself in a, in this echo chamber sort of. And uh, what the saints have always been very good at doing is breaking through that noise to, <laughs> to get to the heart of the matter. Um, this reminds me often of the, of the Memento Mori movement. So I, I really enjoy exploring historic graveyards and <laughs> not sure if any of the listeners have this hobby too. <laughs> I love to go to graveyards. Whenever I travel, it's like, take me to the cemetery. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but when you, what you'll notice in the iconography of a lot, especially we're up here in New England, where we have some quite old stones from the 17th century, even um, the the Puritan tradition was often to have the death's head, the skull, the crossbones or the skull with the wings um, to signify this is the moment of death. And then Tempest Fugit, time flies. Another big one that's always written in Latin is, I forget what it is in Latin, but it translates as today, me, tomorrow, you, that is, right. will be facing death. And in Boston, especially, the iconography is just very intense, where my, my one of my favorite stones is uh, death personified as a skeleton with the scythe. And he's fighting in a duel with Father Time, who is personified as this old man with, with robes flowing and flowing beard. And you, you see this eternal struggle and these things these stones were very um omnipresent and very visible in in christian life really until the eight, mid 1800s and we've gotten away of that constant reminder of death to uh, you know it keeps you on track and living a moral life to have that reminder constantly and not in a in a 
scary, grim way, but in a taking responsibility way and um, in a remembering the, the inevitabilities of life. Well, you know, we've also had a rise in life expectancy, whereas, you know, way back in the times that you're talking about, death was very, very present and top of mind for everyone. But now it's a bit of a shock when someone dies. And then we've, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how much um, COVID has played into this with so much death and kind of in a out of the blue type of way. Too, right. to why the Sophia Press would want to pr- publish this now of all times. Yes, that's a great point. I think it is very timely when people are struggling with these questions of mortality more so than in the past when we've been as, um, as a society just forced to reckon with these inevitabilities and with, with wars going on now, especially too, the, uh, the emphasis that not only is death something that happens to the very old, but as our Lord said, you not know not the day nor the hour. Um, it could, you know, there's no, it's never too early to start preparing to make a good death because nothing is guaranteed in terms of, of time. And it's a, it's a very humbling thought. It's a scary thought, but also sort of empowering that we know um, to place our trust in God by, by living a good life that you will hopefully be granted that grace of final perseverance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been fairly spoiled in the past <laughs> decades. I mean, we yes. had you know the Spanish influenza outbreak in the early 1900s, and then World War One, World War Two, um, Korea and Vietnam. But those were far away. Here in the states, right. we didn't. You know, we thought about it, but not too much, maybe, for many people. But then, since then, we've had a pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, not a lot of suffering and not a lot of death being top of mind like that. Right? Yeah, I agree. We've been spoiled, definitely. When you think of the arc of human history, uh, the life expectancy in the Middle Ages, for example, with, with the plague, I mean, a third of Europe died from one disease and barely make it to middle age that we would consider today. So we are we are, it's almost the, like the Tower of Babel when you think about it. And uh, we, we think that we've defeated death with technology, right? Because we have such advanced medicine and procedures, surgeries, supplements, uh, this whole health industry that has arisen, which is a very good thing. Like we should, we should be promoting health. But uh, I think a lot of people think that they liken it to the, the fountain of youth almost <laughs> that we have, we have thought our way through science to the other side of death and especially with the many ethical questions arising around uh, uh, artificial intelligence and capturing consciousness and that whole possibility of of that wing of science the the line between life and death and consciousness consciousness and unconsciousness has been blurred in a very kind of dangerous way um i'm not sure have you ever read anything by philip k dick at all the sci-fi writer from the 60s yeah yeah okay what what specifically yeah so i i'm just thinking of i think it was in ubik one of his earlier novels about um the the premise and this was like the near future uh fantasy world from the 60s so the premise was that when somebody died, their loved ones could pay for their consciousness to be uploaded and kept in like this 
this farm almost where they could go and visit them, but you would have to pay into the system to be able to have five minutes to speak to them. Uh, and just these very odd twilight zone. And we've seen this in a lot of recent sci-fi shows, for example, idea that they're not really dead. They're in half-life. That's what he called it in the novel half-life. So their soul is trapped essentially. It's not living in a, in an incarnate body, but it's not freed to move on to heaven. So it's, it's very scary what technology can do. And we, they, you know, of course, people will think it's a good thing to defeat death, but not in that way, not in a way that's unnatural. Mm-hmm. Hey, I don't know if you watch Futurama, for example. <laughs> no. no, not yet. <laughs> this is cartoon by Matt Groening, uh, the inventor, the creator of The Simpsons. But um, in the future, they depict all of these heads everywhere. All the famous people have heads kept in jars mm-hmm. so it's the same type of thing you could mm-hmm. talk to them mm-hmm. and interact with them but they were just a head in a jar so again, yeah. um, technology prolonging life but it's not really life right exactly that's the that's the exact same thing and it also reminds me of the twilight zone episode where uh, the guy makes a deal with the devil for eternal life and then goes out and commits a bunch of crimes because the idea of immortality often corrupts, which we see in literature too, that if your body is invincible and can't die, then you can do whatever you want without consequences because they're not thinking in terms of, yeah, of judgment for the final life. They're thinking, oh, I'm going to live a hedonistic life on this earth. I'll be my own God, basically. Um, And what ironically, what ends up happening in this episode is he wants to prove that he can survive the electric chair. So he goes and commits all these crimes and tries to get the death penalty. And then they end up giving him life imprisonment instead, and he can never die. So his, he's essentially condemned himself to a hell on this earth because he, he will be in jail forever because he's immortal. So right. and this, yeah, this lifelong idea, this, this perennial problem of human discomfort with death and being unwilling to face it, which technology has only enabled, is something that I think that this saint particularly and a reprint in 2022 really addresses. Well, no, that's a really good point that, um, yeah, we've kind of put off the question, kick the, kick the can down the road, mm-hmm. in other words. But, I mean, but the questions are the same. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if your life expectancy expectancy is 27 years or 82 years Mm -hmm. all of these principles that he lays out in the 1600s are still very very relevant you know yeah absolutely now with all of the technology and the temptations and the other things that we can experience that didn't exist in his time right and it reminds me of, of quotes from other saints. I can't remember exactly who said this right now, but that uh, it's basically something along the lines of the the unlived life is no life at all. So the the refusal to live for fear of death, this perfectionism. I was reading about the seven deadly sins the other day, and sloth actually comes from the Greek word, um, which translates as acedia, which means basically a malaise. Um, it is often portrayed as the noonday devil. So just that that inability to do anything, the depression that sets upon you, the almost demonic harassment that 
the inner critic in your head who tells you don't even bother trying because you can't do it. And so by talking yourself down in this way, people often don't get anything done and they refuse to progress in the spiritual life because it can't be perfect. So it's, I think that comes from a fear of death, but also a fear of life, a fear of living. Yeah. And they're often the same temptation, which is interesting because you would think that someone with a fear of death would embrace life and vice versa. But often the fear of death can lead you to not, even engage in life and not bother trying and that is no way as saint bellarmine would say that's no way to get to heaven either because that's just another way of avoidance right did you know that radiate wellness is more than just a podcast that's right we're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice find out about our services practitioners and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a co-worker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. Yeah, exactly. Giving your power over to something else besides Mm -hmm. where your power could or should be. Right. Right, right. And the idea that that there's a, I think this, this really is a fear of, making a mistake because of a disbelief in repentance too. Um, and knowing that, yes, we are called uh, to be perfect as, as the Lord in heaven is perfect, but also that we, you, you must step forward. The time is moving forward and you can't be stuck behind. You will grow dependent uh, regardless of what, where your will is or not. So you must engage the will to be growing and to be growing spiritually in virtue because there's really no other choice. <laughs> we are in time. So it'll happen with or without your consent. You will get older. You will, um, you will grow. And it's our job to make sure that we are actually growing and maturing and not just uh, existing and floating. That would be such a waste of mm-hmm. God's gift of mm-hmm. life and God's gift of everything on the earth to just exist. You're putting things in a new perspective that I'm really, really enjoying. Um, I mean, also just this different take on sloth. I, to, to be honest, I never really, I, I just thought it was laziness, but it's so much mm-hmm. more than that. You know, not embracing life, not engaging in life, which, you know, th- that's in Bellarmine's work too, just 
revering the sacred, loving and honoring your spouse and your children. Right. Engaging with life. Yeah. Exactly. And living in your state of life too. So I think often with the problem of sloth, uh, St. Teresa of Avila talks about this too, about uh, that those who seek to do something big for God are often so distracted by these grandiose plans and sort of pie in the sky ambitions that they neglect their own duties in their state of life and how that's the devil's way of getting you to completely paralyze yourself so that you are doing nothing for the, for the glory of God and for your own spiritual development, because you are so obsessed with the theoretical that you're not living in the literal and in the reality. So this is another temptation, especially in our connected global world where anyone can have an opinion on any major issue or conflict. We can all have information at the touch of a finger and we often are living so online, so in the metaverse that we're, we're not looking at what's in front of us physically and the people around us and living through that encounter with the other, which is lost when you, even when you abstract yourself to the degree that you are living completely online, for example. Um, and I think that that often is a manifestation of this type of sloth because this is often portrayed as um, if you've ever seen that great painting called the nightmare of a woman sleeping and there's like a demon sitting on her chest. That's basically like paralyzing her. And this obviously was communicating a different issue, but I think of that often when thinking of this type of sloth, because analysis paralysis, right? Choice paralysis is something that comes from perfectionism. And when we think of how it prevents you from actually living a good life, then you can, you can clearly see that it does have these evil impacts. And uh, I guess the antidote to that, as, as written in this book, is to be more grounded, um, live in the state that God has placed you and recognize that, yes, you can move, you can grow, you can have goals and ambitions, but to also recognize that we should be grateful for what we already have, where we already are. You know, and I love how these messages are so timeless. It's mindfulness. It's um, just being present in the moment. And these are kind of catchphrases now in a way that everybody's wanting to be mindful. We just like be present in the moment, kind of a <laughs> modern, uh, modern take on that. But no, it's so timeless and across many different traditions, right? Not just... Right, I'd say, yeah, the, the, as humans, we all know that we all, right, we, we have, we have souls that God has planted these, these desires in us for a reason. And so, right, that's the first step is just recognizing that in yourself and not, not shutting that down when, when you feel like I, I need to do this research, I need to figure out what's out there and I, I need to live well, that I think often today's society will make fun of that through disdain and through uh, materialism and that um, winning that battle is, is half of the battle to coming to the truth is to, is to figure that, you know what, no, like I know that this world isn't, this isn't all there is. You know, I know that buying seeing the latest movie and buying the, the newest you know, gadget is, is not going to make me happy. And, and investigating that 
desire and, and honoring that um, as the first step towards truth. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that in a way is sloth because it's avoidance. It's not looking at what truly makes us happy, what truly is inside. Yeah, you're right. It's, it is like a Band-Aid. You're by, by constantly feeding. Uh, this is the difference between deep joy and just pleasure too, is yeah. that pleasure is just a, a constant feedback loop where uh, especially when you think of like notifications online, you get one, you have a little burst of dopamine and then it's like, okay, where's the next one? But <laughs> that that's unsustainable and joy that comes from truly connecting deeply and, um, you know, living virtuously and living within integrity is, is something that is not really as enjoyable by today's standards. So it takes a great act of the will to actually focus on that rather than just being constantly bombarded and distracted to the end of your life you know some often it it will it will manifest as a as a maturity issue but i've found that that's not really exactly true like you people can go their whole lives without ever coming to that realization i think so too um yeah maybe it's just a a question of being grounded being again just being present with what is, you know, something that also I'm reminded of is that old, that old phrase, if it feels good, do it, um, said kind of as an insult. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they mean it in terms of doing drugs, having reckless okay. sex, right. drinking alcohol. Those things don't feel good. Right. Feels good is being happy truly deep that deep joy you're talking about being Mm -hmm. connected and you know so I think in that in that case we need to embrace that type of hedonism in a way the hedonism of feeling connected and feeling joyful and feeling part of everything feeling connected to everything uh, I don't know. I'm totally right, right. Because lived well, the the virtuous life is enjoyable, and and we even see this like in the classics, right? With uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle discuss. Uh, the, I mean, even even them just from the standpoint of the natural law, they were living at a time that was very hedonistic, where you know the ancient Greeks were the the model of Achilles, for example, versus the model of of the philosopher was so different, and this is what makes. Plato and Aristotle so radically different is that the the warrior king would have all the pleasures of life. He would he would live for the glorification of himself and then for his nation, and he would be rewarded with you know all of these bodily pleasures and honor and, and you know acclaim and respect and uh, essentially narcissism. <laughs> like he would, um, and that's not to say that that honor isn't good or any of that, but the as I forget which one of those three of the trifecta said it, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think what they often were reacting against is the tendency in, in this gladiator culture that uh, to not to not think deeply, to not engage with philosophy, to to not introspect whatsoever, and to live at a very surface level where you see that the people often who who appeared happy who had all the trappings of happiness did not have that internal sense of peace or understanding and especially like for me i know that just as a intellectually curious person not delving into that and not introspecting is painful and in order to self-medicate against that pain i guess that is where 
where it becomes a, con a continuous cycle with, with more hedonistic pursuits because uh, the pain of not living within integrity is, is unavoidable because we all are born with a conscience. And um, St. Bellarmine, you know, would, would discuss this in terms of the sacrament of confession that you, you do become unhappy when you are living a sinful life. And even if you deny it, you can deny it all you want and you can pretend, but it's still something that deep inside is not going to be fixed by these outer worldly trappings. Now, you know, non-Catholics um, don't, I, being a non-Catholic myself, we don't tend to see the sacrament of confession for what it truly is. You know, we think of, oh, well, you confess it's your sins and then it's okay. Everything's, everything's removed. Everything's, I feel like it's more than that. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like, yes, don't carry around the weight of the sins. Once we tell the things that we've done, the things that are in our heart, then we are more free. Is it more like mm -hmm. that? Sure. Yeah. It's very fascinating and just so much insight that every, every time I learn more about confession, I just learn more. We, we just put out a really interesting examination of conscience based on the seven deadly sins too, rather than the, uh, the 10 commandments. Cause usually for Catholics, what, what we do is we'll go through the 10 commandments and be like, okay, like this was a clear violation of that one. That's a sin. All right. And uh, because you need to confess both the number and the kind of your sins. So they have to be something that you can boil down to an actual fact <laughs> that you can say. Whereas with the seven deadly sins, pride, for example, how, how easy would it be to confess pride? That's difficult, right? Like, how do you say like, oh, I was prideful on this occasion? It's hard to boil down because the seven deadly sins often manifest almost as personality traits. Yeah, they, exactly. You know, you'll just say so-and-so is irritable all the time. Like that's anger. But if they didn't commit a mortal sin, then maybe they're not rooting out that anger, right? Maybe they're just saying, oh, that's how he is. Like he's yeah, got a temper. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the great thing about that book was recognizing, no, like if somebody has a tendency towards extreme anger, like, that's got to be rooted out. You know, it's um, even if you're staying out of you know, crossing the line into mortal sin and uh, it's still something that does not come from God. So, and of course, righteous anger is its own thing, but this is where uh, regular confession really helps the life of the Catholic because you, uh, we often ask the Holy spirit to reveal these hidden faults and they're often something that you wouldn't even consider pride, for example, there are four different types of pride. And we usually think of the main one as um, the pride of arrogance and of somebody who just is basically a narcissist, your typical braggadocious, prideful, uh, you know, Wall Street go-getter. Like, yeah, the showboats on the end, you know, at the end goal, I, I don't know. Football. Yeah, exactly. Right. We all know that caricature. But then there's also the pride of timidity and the pride of sensitivity, which I had not heard of before. But these often manifest as depression and as anxiety or worry or lack of self-esteem. But they actually come from pride because they are an inversion of the correct sense of self. So on one hand, you have someone who thinks that they're better than they are. And then on the other side of the spectrum, with the pride of timidity, you have a worse vision of yourself than what you actually are. 
And in order to let go of that, it is still the same antidote of humility as to the other type of pride, because humility is a correct viewing of yourself, a correct viewing of the human person, seeing yourself through God's eyes rather than your eyes, rather than the eyes of the world and your critics or even your, your supporters. Um, and so a reorientation of the concept of self and where you belong in, in the supernatural order. So that, that was just really interesting to me that the, um, that, that's something that we think would be just a feeling can actually come from pride and that we can't, it's empowering though, that you can, you know, ask for the graces to root that out. Uh, so right back to your uh, just a long-winded explanation of something to do with confession, but um, back to your question of, of what happens to the sins. So basically after the confession, after the confession occurs, so the sacrament, the absolution is given by the priest then uh, typically we are given a penance. So that can be anything from a prayer to, we get off really easy these days because we typically just get a decade of the rosary or something. But uh, back in the day, uh, penances would often be public and <laughs> very intense. So Henry II, for example, who had uh, St. Thomas a Becket killed, had to walk to Canterbury on his knees as his penance for that like admittedly grievous crime um, but he got off easy yeah he got right exactly so it's the uh what we do there is to make reparation for the sin so the sin has been forgiven so the person who dies at that moment has has been forgiven that sin it is no longer held against them in the judgment but there's also the temporal effects of that sin that have to be expiated so that is why purgatory exists for example so we can get into purgatory i know we have a couple books coming out soon about that um it exists as a state wherein those sins that were committed and that have been forgiven can be purged because the effects of sin on your soul stay there they you know often you see somebody who you know, if they've been living a debauched life and uh, murdering people and whatever they, and then convert and have a moment of forgiveness from God, they still are going to be scarred by those experiences. And they're still going to have, you know, that, that the effects that it has on your, on your soul. If you just think of like a bodily scar too, like it heals, it's no longer happening, but the effects are still there. So this is the purpose of indulgences that the church has a treasury of, of prayers, of fasting, of all those sort of offer it up um, type of sacrifices are, are to get rid of all of that temporal um, punishment or um, yeah, just effects due to sin. So a lot, a big part of that is actually, like you said, learning to forgive yourself too, and moving forward from the sin, knowing that you are doing what the church prescribes to get rid of the sin, but not wallowing and dwelling in the sin, because that'll actually just bring you right back into sin. And uh, despair itself can be a sin, because if, think about it this way, if God has forgiven you, and you're not forgiving yourself, what do you think you know more than God? Like <laughs> you said, you're forgiven. You can choose to trust him. And that is where a lot of people, people struggle is they, they hold things against themselves for longer than God himself has held them against them. And it just leads to, to more sin that way. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's very interesting. Like I said, I am not a Catholic. Um, these things are fascinating to me, though, just to look at it in a very different way than what I than how I look at it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, really, this book it is the art of dying well, but it sounds like it's more of the art of living well. Absolutely. So when you leave, you don't have anything lingering. Exactly. And that's the goal. And St. Bellarmine would say, uh, and many saints have said that it is, it is easier to live a good life and to expiate all of the, the pain due to sin here on earth than to do it in purgatory. And we are given such a great grace and gift to have the opportunity to recognize what a good life looks like and what we should be doing so that we can do it here rather than suffer in the next life because we can't even imagine the the joys of the next life any joy that we feel here any beauty that we see the most beautiful cathedral or sunset for example is only a shadow of of what awaits in heaven and the fast track to heaven is to take care of all of that sin here on earth to to do away with it to, to expurgate um, by, by following these tenets and really the moment of death is like we said, a culmination of a life. So to be who you are in that moment is really to be who you have been your whole life. And it's empowering to know that you can change who you are to be able to be the person you want to be at the moment of your death, but also a clarion call to be doing that on a daily basis, because it's not a project that can wait till the end of your life. It's uh, the the formation of character is a lifelong pursuit, and the best way that we can guarantee our happiness in that final moment is to guarantee is to work at it today. You know, and I I I just want to underline this again that I love how so many of the things that Saint Bellarmine was saying in the 1600s are true today in terms of being present, being prayerful, even fasting. We're finding that intermittent fasting is actually very healthful for your body. It's very good for your body. Um, You know, confessing sins to me that would be unburdening your heart, talking to friends, talking to people, and talking about the things that you've done. So all of these things are still, I mean, they're, they're timeless, loving and honoring family, your spouse, etc., uh, guarding against sin. But today we would look at it as just being the most in integrity that we can be, right? So that this is so not only timeless, but also um, kind of spaceless, I guess you could say. It doesn't, we're not limited by a geographic location. It's global, in other words, yeah. So very right. It was written in 1622, and wow, just right. The the human nature doesn't change, and God's no. God's love for us doesn't change, and the church itself does not change. So it's very refreshing to see just to see that that very clear reminder of that in this readable text. Oh, absolutely. Well, it, you know, even bringing up the ancient Greeks, there are so many truths mm-hmm. there that are still true now, and in the Bible, so many truths. Shakespeare. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. More things change, the more they're the same, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, yeah, very fascinating. The, the name of the book, again, is The Art of Dying Well from Sophia Press, written actually in 1622 by St. Robert Bellarmine. That is fascinating. 
Awesome. Anything else we haven't covered about this interesting book that you think is important? I think that pretty much covered it. Uh, yeah, it's just, I would reiterate how readable it is and how uh, he breaks it into just these 17 short chapters that encapsulate the timeless truths of the church in such an accessible way and really break it down so that it's not intimidating whatsoever. So it's just an amazing saint who possesses the mind to be able to write deep theological works, but also works for the moral life in such a direct way. Absolutely. And where, and where can we get this book if we'd like to read more? Of? It's available at our website, which is sophiainstitute.com. This is the beautiful cover with the white rose there. We're actually running an Easter sale throughout the rest of Lent. So you can take a look, maybe catch us at that 30% off uh, and also find us on social media for more tips. Fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I look forward to speaking with you again. It sounds like you've got a lot of great books that I'd love to discuss with you. Yeah, we'll keep you posted. A busy schedule for the next couple months, so we'll definitely be in touch. Wonderful. All right. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you, Kristen. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.